you are living in a global trauma okay your fear center is going wackadoodle all the time and remember how you used to wear your heart on your sleeves as a child so you know how they say like um survival of the fittest mm. no survival of the most anxious for my work i tend to think about shame as being kind of a fear of other people's minds fear of judgment fear of what other people think of us Hi everyone, welcome back to season three of Refreshingly Human, where we are going to be discussing our emotions and just how real and honest and natural our emotions are. So I want you to just sit back for a moment, whatever you're doing, just sit back, close your eyes. If you're walking or driving, probably don't do that. <laughs> but let's just think about ourselves as children. And remember how you used to wear your heart on your sleeves as a child. So maybe you really wanted a toy or you really wanted a sweet and your emotions would just flare up if you didn't get what you want. So you'd either maybe cry out in frustration or in anger or in sadness or all of the above and you'd just react instantly. And I think that as children, we so innocently react to every feeling that we have. But as we grow up, we are conditioned to put our feelings into good and into bad and to assign different sorts of meanings and to maybe even repress our feelings. So in this season, I want to explore how natural it is for us and how important it is for us to just feel all the feels. And that is why I have with me today, Sarah. Um, and Sarah, I'd like you to just give a brief introduction. You are um, a practicing therapist, is that right? Hi, yeah. So I'm Sarah. I am um, originally trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. I've got a few other therapies under my belt. Um, and yeah, I like to talk about emotions all day long. That's perfect. And how long have you been working uh, in CBT? Uh, so I trained in, oh gosh, 2009-ish, I think. Uh -huh. um, and I've been, yeah, I've been a therapist ever since, um, mostly in the NHS. So I've got like 10 plus years in the NHS delivering therapy. Um, and I've got like a small private practice now as well. Oh, wow, that's amazing. That's great. And you're quite passionate about emotions and feelings. Oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of feelings get a lot of um, bad rep, really. I think some have a real bad reputation. Um, and then there are others that just aren't talked about enough. Yeah, I get you. I think that things are changing in respect of what we are talking about now, but it is definitely something we are progressing towards. And there's a lot of uh, old school thoughts that we need to start breaking down. So hopefully we can get into some of that today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Sarah's going to be helping me explore three feelings today. We're going to be talking about fear and we're going to be talking about shame and then joy and happiness. <laughs> I like we're doing it in that order. We're ending on the nice one. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because it's, it's kind of funny, like when Sarah and I were discussing this episode, um, I think majority of the emotions I came up with were what we would nowadays call negative emotions. And uh, Sarah, you pointed out that there aren't many um, positive emotions. No, we are, are what we would think of as negative ones, like the fear and the anger, they we really need them and actually for survival they're really important um, and as animals because that's what is what we are um, we we kind of keep the things that work and actually things like anxiety and fear they work for us to keep us to keep us going um, so yeah we've got lots of different negative I put that in inverted commas um, emotions and some of those have a bad rep um, and then there are so there are some nice ones. We've got like, like you say, joy and happiness and excitement. We have a tendency to think we're meant to live in these happy ones all the time. And, and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely like most of my life has been negative emotions in inverted commas. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, let's jump into it. So let's talk about fear. So from an evolutionary point of view, how did fear come into existence? So fear is like my favourite and it has the worst reputation and it really needs to be kind of like rehabilitated, I think, because fear is actually incredibly helpful. So if you think about like, what is the number one job of every living thing on the planet is to stay alive. <laughs> Everything else after that is secondary. If you want to go on and create something beautiful in the world or you want to go on and have children or whatever, you still have to be alive to do it. So we have to start with, let's stay alive. And fear allows us to spot danger. If we, if we can't spot a danger, we're going to be at a massive disadvantage. So you know how they say, like, um, survival of the fittest? Mm. No, survival of the most anxious. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Is that why I'm still alive? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So... Fear goes back, I mean, so long in our evolutional history. Like, I don't even think we could kind of imagine what, it like, what it's like to ha not have it. Um, every animal has it. If you've ever watched like a documentary, you know, a nature documentary, and the shark is swimming towards the fish, all the fish swim out of the way. And fish are much more basic than humans, and yet they still know to do that. So this part of our brain that's going to alert us to a danger has been around for billions and billions of years and anybody who didn't have an anxiety response a response to fear or a response to danger died billions and billions and billions of years ago we are descended from the best of the best at this <laughs> so the dinosaurs didn't quite dodge the bullet there. <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i think there was a comet involved <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> of course so so that's a very primal instinct of fear, which is great to know that that's where it all started. But now, nowadays, we've kind of evolved to a very busy lifestyle, a very, uh, I think, like a very evolved lifestyle. So how do you think fear has adapted to our lives today? So basically, it hasn't. It's so basic, it can't adapt past everything is okay everything has gone totally wrong. Those are like its two settings. So the part of your brain that's involved is called your amygdala. Um, I often just call it fear brain because it's a little bit easier to say. 
And what, what your fear brain is going to do is it's going to be spotting danger. It sets off the metaphorical alarm bells in your head that says, do something. Um, and you're going to have one of four basic responses to that. And that hasn't changed over, over our time. Um, any other response, bar basically these four, died out because it didn't work. We're only left with the ones that work. So these four basic responses, most people have heard of the first two, which is fight and flight. flight. Yeah, so people often talk about the fight and flight response. There's two others. There's freeze. So you might just get frozen to the spot. You know, that rabbit in the headlights kind of shock when we get, um, when we get scared of something. Um, or appease. So we might do something to placate the threat, to try and maybe kind of settle it or um, make our anxiety feel less in order that we can escape. Wow, that's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to like relate that to my own anxiety. And I think you're very right. I only, I've only ever thought of anxiety in terms of flight or fight or flight responses. Um, so um, I think freeze comes from that sense of like, if I don't move, maybe whatever it is won't see me, <laughs> mm. you know, like um, if I just stay really still, I'll sort of camouflage myself maybe into the background. It's like playing dead when something's attacking you. <laughs> it, it could possibly be like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then appease is, is that kind of, it can come up in different ways, this one. So it can come up almost before the real threat's really kicked off as kind of conflict avoidance. So, oh, I'll just go along with whatever you say, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, does that make sense? Yes. Um, I'm just like, again, trying to relate it back to my life. And I think that um, that's a big one in my life. Uh, I always hated conflict. Um, so that was something I would used to do a lot in the past. Yeah, I think we all do it. And the, the, the thing I want to say about all four of these, they're completely normal. They're completely natural. And they are exactly what you're meant to be doing in order to stave off some threat that your brain, to be fair, your brain sees these threats as life and death. Again, it doesn't really have much of a middle ground of like, oh, well, this is a little bit threatening. It mm -hmm. kind of says like, everything's okay. Everything's gone to hell. And those four responses, they haven't really changed. So you're right. We live in this incredibly complicated world now where we have so much information available to us and so much information just kind of bombards us. Um, but this part of the brain, it, it doesn't know that. It says, is everything okay? Or is everything gone, gone wrong? What do I need to do about that? And it does it very quickly. Well, so we're not living in a world where we have to like run away from lions or, you know, those, I, I guess our dangers today are very different. So how do you think uh, fear helps us to survive um, in the modern day world? So I am actually going to go back to that lion example because this is how fear works. Um, so the first thing it's going to do is it's going to alert us to a danger. So, you know, if we are out I don't know, foraging for food and we get attacked by a lion, um, your brain has to really quickly figure out something, what's going on. You know, this is a really big cat. It has big teeth. It's bigger than me. I need to do something about this. And it's going to throw you into one of those decisions. Um, and your amygdala 
that fear brain, it's just going to run the show. It's bypassing all of that logical part of your brain that you have. Okay. So we have a logical brain. Our logical brain is amazing. It helps us navigate this really complicated world that you're talking about where, you know, we've got um, language, we've got um, incredibly complex and sophisticated social structures. Um, Your logical brain does amazing things you take for granted. Like it lets you plan the future. Like that's quite rare. Not a lot of animals can do that, that we can see the future. Mm. So if you, if you were thinking about planning a holiday, I know in lockdown, that's probably off the cards right now. But um, if you were thinking about planning a holiday, you know that you're going to need to book a train and you're going to need to book a plane and you're going to need to book a hotel. You can think in the future. And this is amazing. But when it comes to these life and death situations, your logical brain is kind of useless. In fact, it's an active hindrance because it wants to go through all the permutations to figure out what to do. And if you're being chased by a lion, that's going to take some time to figure out. And the person who just started running at the beginning has definitely got the advantage. So it's basically like an instinct more than anything else, like a natural instinct. Yes. Okay. So it's going to, what, what the amygdala does, it's going to release a lot of stress hormones. So this is stuff like your adrenaline and cortisol, a few others. Um, So first off, some of those are actually going to travel to that more logical part of the brain and they basically turn it off. So it stops working because it would be such a hindrance to use it at that moment. So have you ever done that thing where like you look back on something you did under stress later on and you're like, why did I do that? That makes absolutely no sense. Yes. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> and basically what has happened is your amygdala started running the show. You just did something. You just did whatever you had to do. And then your logical brain, when it gets sort of turned back on, when the stress levels come down and it starts to work again, it steps in and says, what on earth did you do that for? That makes no sense. Mm. Mm. So you're, the first thing you have to do with that, by the way, is you've got to offer yourself that compassion back. You have to say, like, it's okay, brain. I'm, I'm still alive. I must have done something right. Like, I know you've got some good ideas about what I should have, could have, would have done, but it's okay. <laughs> and if you... I can also kind of talk a little bit about like the side effects of adrenaline because actually they make our body work in a new way when we get really scared. So adrenaline has some actually kind of cool side effects, which help if you're running away from this thing. So your heart rate goes up, your breathing rate goes up, your, the capacity of your lungs actually gets bigger because adrenaline opens up the, the capillaries in your lungs. Um, your muscles get activated because again, if you're running away from a tiger, you're going to want these big muscles to be like doing all that work. Um, and essentially your body loves you and it wants <laughs> you to live and it's going to throw every trick in the book at it. That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of a modern day context of a situation where well, I mean, I know a lot of things come to mind for my life when it comes to anxiety and I'm not like, I'm not really thinking so much in terms of survival though, when it comes mm-hmm. to my anxiety, because, um, I have a history of anxiety and depression. So I've been like in the, the suicidal 
brain um, effect. And, you know, I, um, I go through phases with it as well. So this is going to be very honest here. But yeah, I go through phases with like suicidal mindset and just thinking like, oh, it, like life is really hard to live sometimes and it would be just easier to, you know, just not be alive. But then I guess my brain also goes to thinking, but in the past I felt this way and then I got to do this and that and that and I got to experience like amazing things. And if I had to give up now, I would not see what I could do in the future, even though it's hard, I think it's worth it. But yeah, I think like anxiety and depression probably kind of help each other out a little bit. They can do. Um, I know when you're suffering both, it's you, sometimes you don't know whether you're sort of coming or going. Yeah. Depression is is really heavy. I, I talk about it as like a heavy emotion. It like weighs us down. It makes doing anything like 20 million times harder. Like getting out of bed becomes like Mount Everest, right? Mm. Whereas anxiety is full of energy because yeah. that's what it's designed for. It's designed to get us going to avoid these things that scare us. I'll talk about my own experience with anxiety and depression in the anxiety and depression episode. Um, but I think like we actually should go on to the next emotion now, <laughs> uh, which is shame. Um, so let's jump into shame in the same, same questions from an evolutionary point of view. Where did shame come from and where is it today? So... Shame is a little bit more complicated than fear. Okay. Um, and I think it could be born out of various different places. So places like guilt or disgust or judgment or embarrassment. For my work, I tend to think about shame as being kind of a fear of other people's minds, fear of judgment, fear of what other people think of us. And if we have enough of that, eventually fear of our own minds, because we start to say those judgmental things to ourselves. We start to feel um, those things as if we're saying them to ourselves. I had a real think about this because I thought actually if we still experience shame it must have had some kind of evolutionary purpose at some point um, and I was thinking probably one of the things it might have done is it helps with like social conformity. It makes us want to kind of be the same as others. We don't want to stand out, we don't want to be outside of the group um, and humans we have this amazing capacity to communicate with the most cooperative um, animal on the planet by a long way and keeping a group together and conforming to set standards would definitely serve a purpose so I wonder that um, if that is where that might be coming from is that shame has been used to try and create some kind of social conformity within the groups that we live in that makes a lot of sense like if i had to relate that to my life again um i think shame is like something for me i think shame was something that was programmed into me more than it was a natural response to anything so it did come from a cultural setting and exactly what you said like it was programmed into me to fit into a certain cultural setting and once I removed myself from that cultural setting, there was like a residue of shame left behind inside of me 
that's associated to that culture. Um, so again, I'll get into that more on the shame episode. Um, but do you think that shame is kind of like something that helps us to survive? Or like I just mentioned, it might just be something that's conditioned in us. I, I think it's the conditioning. I think even just you saying what you've just said about how you really feel that pressure that was put on you to, to fit a certain um, standard. It's definitely something that we have used to yeah, try and keep people in their boxes or try and keep people kind of doing what we think they should be doing for the betterment of ourselves. Um, and we, we need to belong. That's the other part of that. So we, I remember actually you said, I think when we were talking before, like shame's your least favorite of the things that you're going to be talking about. And there's good reason for that because it's really quite nasty. Um, but it does come out of this need to belong. And if we, if I take you through a very quick kind of evolution of the brain you've got your lizard brain that people often talk about which is like it wants food it wants water it wants a little bit of territory it wants a mate it wants some warmth um, and then it's going simple life wouldn't that be <laughs> wonderful um, and even even when it does mate it's going to lay its eggs and leave you know those those no commitments <laughs> those those beings are just going to they're kind of born ready wow um, but on top of that because we're not lizards, we have mammal brains. Um, and the mammal brain is different because mammals care for their young for a start. So the real massive difference is that they have to look after their young. They're, they're not born quite as ready. And mm. um, so we, uh, all mammals breastfeed. Um, and to do that, we need to live in groups because if you're out on your own, you know, if you're a zebra and you're out feeding your young, you can't keep an eye to make sure that you're not going to get attacked. Mm. So our mammal brain has learnt over time through evolution that living in groups is the best thing because you've got more eyes on the, mm. you know, on the horizon. Um, and actually, even if you're a predator animal, you're much more likely to survive if you live in a group. Is, is it kind of, boiling down to acceptance to to a certain group yes so we while we have human brains on top of our mammal brains you've got to remember like each level of this we still need everything from the level before mammals still need food and a mate and warmth and some territory um, and humans still need that and they need everything that mammals need which is group living or you know a group in order to kind of further their survival so getting kicked out of the group your brain thinks is equivocal to like a death sentence because if you were to get kicked out of zebra club you're not going to live very long yeah yeah now our humans have a lot more clubs don't they <laughs> way more clubs you know you think about, that's the thing you're exposed to so many different um, groups and cultures you know we used to live in sort of small Groups of maybe like a couple of hundred. I mean, most people have more Facebook friends than that these days or Instagram followers or whatever. And you're exposed to so many different um, influences and you, you kind of want to fit in with all of them because your brain says, oh, let's fit in. I need to fit in everywhere. Yeah. And, it's, and I mean, it's actually impossible. You can't possibly fit in everywhere. But your brain still says, I need to try. And then when you, 
when you fail at that, because you will sometimes, that's when the shame sets in. Right. Yep. I mean, I'm literally all I've been thinking for the last few minutes was, damn, I wish I was a lizard. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds all right. You know, go out and sunbathe on a rock somewhere and, you know, have some food and crawl in a hole for a while. Uh, okay that's cool and yeah so we are going to do an episode on shame and I'm definitely going to delve more into personal experiences and personal stories when it comes to shame it's a fascinating emotion and like Sarah mentioned it's my least favorite emotion but it played a purpose in my life uh, for sure and I think it plays a purpose in everyone's life I do want to add just one more thing about shame is to say that because you were sort of saying does it help us survive and actually the the thing about shame this is the one that nobody talks about so i'm loving you're doing a whole episode on it <laughs> um but actually really high levels of shame are associated with lots of mental health difficulties depression anxiety social anxiety ptsd all of those shame is across you know high levels of shame come up across all of those so while um fear gets a bad rep and everybody wants to get rid of it. It's actually really useful. Whereas nobody talks about shame and it's one of the most damaging. And I, I read a quote somewhere that said something like, when secrets are told in safety, shame dies. And I really I like that. that. That's amazing. And that, that just reminds me of my, my friend group that I have right now, the community that I've built for myself right now and how I can be so open and honest with them about a lot of things. And the sense of shame is slowly going away. You know, it's, it's like, it's just acceptance now without the shame. <laughs> and it's yeah. an amazing difference to the way I actually grew up. Well, thanks, Sarah. I think that was enlightening. And um, I'm definitely looking forward to that, doing that episode and exploring this emotion a bit more. Uh, So let's go to the so-called positive emotion of joy and happiness and walk us through the history of these emotions. So joy, happiness, these again, like um, fear is linked with um, hormones around um, things like adrenaline and cortisol. Joy um, is linked with some really nice chemicals. So these are your dopamines, your opiates, your oxytocin um, that make us feel lovely and these are the hormones that we get when we say we're kind of experiencing happiness or joy Mm -hmm. um and what they do is they build in these like little rewards to what we're doing Mm. so we need like a drive system we need something that makes us go and do stuff because like you said maybe being a lizard would be quite nice and we would just (laughs) like to lie around all day but even the lizard has to have something to go and eat, like go and do something that's going to mm. kind of keep you alive a little bit longer. So these little hits of dopamine and our opiates, they reward us when we do things, when we do things that are good for us. We get this little hit of reward and um, behavioral theory says, you know, if you reward a behavior, you you become more, it gets reinforced and you're more likely to do it again. Okay. So dopamine is part of that drive system which will have been really helpful for us because it makes us go out and gather food and water and um look after our our family um so it's kind of helpful right yeah it's quite nice i think it definitely feels quite nice um i think like um 
again, just trying to relate the information back to myself, as I'm sure the listeners are as well. Uh, and when I think about joy or happiness, like just as someone who suffers with depression and anxiety, I think that joy and happiness, um, it sounds really bad to say this, and I'm not like going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm like depressed all the time. I'm not. Um, I actually have very neutral emotions most of the time. <laughs> um, and I don't actually feel joy or happiness as often as I think, I think that it's portrayed that we should be feeling these things. Is that, is that normal or is that uh, just something? I definitely think our perception of like what we think everybody else is feeling is way off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really easy to look in on people's lives from that like snapshot version and think, oh, they've got it all together. They must be so happy. They've got X, you know, they've got a nice car or they've got that good job and, and think, oh, they've got it sorted. Um, and I think, I think actually that can even exacerbate our own sadness, our own depression of thinking, oh, I haven't got, you know, we do that compare and then despair. Mm. Um, and I think that if we actually knew what everybody else was feeling, we'd all start to feel way more normal. <laughs> well, normal. I mean, what is normal? Oh, yeah. yeah. That should be an important <laughs> as well, shouldn't it? Be more neutral, I think. But, um, yeah, uh, what was I going to say? I just, I just think that when it comes to joy and happiness, like for me, most of the time when I feel... I think what is perceived to be happy or I think beyond happiness when I feel my best self is when I feel content. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And grateful. And those are two things I associate with happiness to me. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the, these little dopamine hits, you probably don't even realize you're getting them in some ways. Um, So um so what i'm trying to say is people have figured out the science of this they've figured out how to game the system essentially um and they've invented all this stuff that gives us these dopamine hits um on a daily basis that we don't even recognize gambling machines your phone like um the apps on your phone like they're using the science of how our brain works to keep us coming back And what that can do is you kind of get addicted. You can get kind of sucked into these things because the reward keeps saying, go back, go back, get more. Isn't that great? But as you said, if actually that's what you're doing, if it's the only way you're getting these little hits, you're not really going to feel what you would call content or happy in the Mm. long term. Uh. I I think you raise a really interesting question of like, what's the difference between like joy and happiness? And I think joy is that like temporary sense of like, oh, that feels really nice. Like it's that, that kind of real boost where you're right in the middle of it. Sure. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a really nice feeling to have. We, we don't want to be getting rid of that either. I, I agree with you though. I think happiness is more about that contentment over time. And it's often linked to kind of broader things, not just, oh, I got a hit off my phone, but a sense of purpose, a sense of well-being, compassion, fulfillment Mm. with what is important to you and your values. And I think we can, if our 
happiness is based on those things, I think we can be happy and content even when we're stressed. We can actually have it in conjunction with other emotions, even sadness, even depression. We can still look at our lives and say, actually, the lo- I am still living the life that I want. Mm, for sure. I, I can totally relate to that. And yeah, I just want to say that sometimes happiness is just a sweet, sweet chocolate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that really gets those dopamines going for me. <laughs> it really does. They've actually, they've actually done studies on it. And yeah, if you, um, if people who call themselves a chocoholic, it totally <laughs> activates the, the opium in your brain when you have a piece of chocolate. It's a real thing. There we go. <laughs> it's a simple thing sometimes. <laughs> it really is. Awesome. So Sarah, I think like so far, I've really learned a lot from you and I've been able to connect a lot of dots to my own life. And hopefully the listeners have as well been able to reflect and look back in their own lives um, with these emotions. Uh, I'd like you to maybe share a story of your own experience on how you had to feel one of these emotions or all of these emotions and how expressing and feeling it helped you to get to where you needed to get. So I think when we think about emotions, we tend to sort of believe they only exist in their like big forms. So we only kind of notice we feel scared when we feel really quite scared, or we only notice that we feel happy when we feel exceptionally happy. And what we miss is that actually we are feeling these emotions constantly in like never ending combinations um, like throughout our day. So I think each day we are working alongside these feelings, hopefully towards those fulfilling those meaningful lives that we want. Um, and somebody a lot wiser than me once said like, everything you want is on the other side of fear. And I completely agree with that. And I think we need to give ourselves credit each time we open ourselves up to fear in the pursuit of something that's really meaningful to us. So um, like each time we learn something new, we have to open ourselves up to that fear of failure. We have to open ourselves up to like the fear of like sucking at something at the beginning, right? Because... <laughs> This is another quote from one of my favorite cartoons. Sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something. I love that. Which cartoon is that? (laughs) It's from Adventure Time. Oh, I don't Uh, know that one. (laughs) (laughs) And, but you have to go through that phase of actually kind of being bad at something. And that might activate a lot of like fear for you. So I think, you know, to do anything that's going to be meaningful to you, you have to actually put yourself through that anxiety and I think um I mean like every time you put yourself on a dating app for example like you're opening yourself up to rejection that's really scary um and you might not feel it as like oh I'm petrified of of having my my photo on whatever the latest dating app is but actually you are walking alongside your fear and saying like this is worth it Mm. like in the pursuit of maybe getting a meaningful relationship it is worth me going through this thing that's going to make me feel a little bit uneasy or a bit vulnerable. So we need to, I think, really recognize each of us in ourselves that like we're so much braver than we give ourselves credit for. Mm. Yeah. 
And actually, a lot of what you just said, Sarah, is um, things that uh, I have explored in the last two episodes on uh, when I spoke about the fear. Um, I spoke about failure and I did an episode on the pressure to succeed. And I had a very similar quote in the last episode where I said that often when we start something new, there's this fear that we're going to feel. And that's often telling us that this thing is worth it. It's, it's, and that fear is that driving force. And if we're not feeling that fear, then maybe we're not challenging ourselves enough in this. And yeah, I think we can use these natural emotions as a drive, as a, you know, as, um, as, a, as life lessons, as, as acceptance. And as is, I think overall for me, as love for yourself, to accept every part of yourself, everything that you feel, to just feel all the feels and to really know yourself. It just gives you that, that holistic feeling of this is me. This is how I am. Yeah. And I think when we can accept all of those emotions, that they all exist, they're all within us, actually you, you're going to become a wholer person, right? You're mm. going to become actually more authentically yourself. Mm, authentically yourself that's uh, such a trending thing to say but so I true. know <laughs> I said it it sounded said a it. bit cheesy but there we go there we go <laughs> so Sarah if you could leave the listeners with one bit of advice on how to how to just feel what we need to feel especially in this time of crisis when people are I think all our emotions are 10 times what they usually are uh, in this global pandemic, what advice would you give us? So exactly what you've just said about feel your feels, you've got to start looking at how you're feeling and really understanding that to start to almost like embrace how you feel because only when you do that can you actually really hear what's happening and what you might need to do to change that. Most of the time we spend time on our phones or on Netflix or whatever, like distracting ourselves from our feelings. Um, so for this current time, the first thing I want to remind everybody is you are living in a global trauma. Okay. Your fear center is going wackadoodle all the time. <laughs> um, we're living in a global trauma. And if you can't recognize that, you're never going to be able to give yourself the compassion and the kindness that you need. So expecting yourself just to be able to like do whatever you were doing before it's actually really unreasonable if you think about it. So once you can actually acknowledge what's really happening in the world and in yourself, you can actually start to think, well, how can I approach this in a way that's going to actually help me? And when we do that, we need to do it with kindness and we need to do it with compassion. And it, it often comes back to something that's it's quite a cliche in therapy, but like, how would you speak to your best friend if they told you? How would you speak to a child who was upset by this? Because actually we have that ability to self-soothe and be compassionate. We just always throw it at everybody else. We <laughs> never throw it at ourselves. So it's turn that compassion inwards. Speak to yourself like you would your best friend. And you can then allow all of those emotions to exist. Like you were saying, like, I'm going to be my whole self and they're all going to be here. But I can still apply compassion and I can still self-soothe. So interesting that you mentioned how you would speak to your best friend because in therapy last week, my therapist asked me the exact same question. 
we have got a couple of like lines we trot out every now and again. <laughs> sure. Well, yes, thank you again, Sarah. It's been really great chatting to you and I've got a lot out of this. I hope um, that the list, I'm sure that the listeners did as well. So thanks for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. And yeah, and for everyone out there, next week we're going to be exploring another three emotions, some interesting ones like anger and uh, anger and love and sadness. Um, yeah, some powerful emotions. I know anger has been a big driving force in my life. So looking forward to that conversation next week. I'll see you all in the next episode. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Refreshingly Human with myself, Hannah Pillow. It's been great having you join me today. If you liked my content, please do share it with a friend you think would find it interesting and subscribe to the show as well. I would love to have you listening in to many episodes to come. You can find me on the socials. I'm on Facebook as Refreshingly Human and Instagram as Hannah Pillow. See you next time.